0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Jamal Harwood. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum, and um, glad Thank to be alaykum here. Alaykum. Thank you. You're very welcome. Welcome, as salam, sir. Um, Jamal has kindly agreed to introduce us uh, to the world of Islamic economics, a subject I know very little about, but is of central importance uh, to human life. Jamal is a chartered accountant who works in management consulting and as a business studies lecturer. Uh, He embraced Islam in 1986 and has been active with Hizb ut Tahrir, the Liberation Party, since 1988. He has been active in local and global politics for many years, speaking throughout the UK and globally, including the Financial Crisis Conference in Sudan in 2009, and other major conferences in the Middle East, Pakistan, India, Indonesia, the US, and around Europe. Jamal has debated with uh, former UK cabinet ministers Norma Lamont, Peter Lilly, and Dominic Grieve about the economy in Islam and the role of Muslims in the UK. He is author of numerous political and economic articles, including reports on the gold standard, countering poverty, and the causes and solutions for the financial crisis jamal blogs regularly at economy dissected on facebook and i'll link to it in the description below so over to you uh, jamal okay thank you uh, paul
1: and um <clears throat> i have a presentation which i'll go through and then um if you have any particular questions you know please feel free to, thank to you. just jump in really Sorry. um Just starting off, I mean, many people have a rather pessimistic view of where the Muslim ummah is at the moment. Mm. But when we actually think about it, you know, we are a a phenomenal um, nation. You know, we have an incredible history. And, you know, the fact that we are divided, that we are effectively like a cash cow for the major superpower or superpowers of the world today You know, it can all be changed and can actually be changed relatively quickly because we have the powerful foundation of the Islamic Aqidah running through our veins. And it's really incumbent upon us to bring this forward and to, again, reestablish and reunify the Muslim world. And if we do that, you know, we're then in a good position um, to to actually reestablish justice in the world. Now... Again, apologies, the the text of the Arabic is not um, showing up here. But again, throughout this presentation, I want to talk about a core creedal point, which is that Allah the Supreme has created this life, this world, and all within it. And He, subhanahu wa ta'ala, has designed within the majesty of this world, its oceans, its resources, its abundant blessings, You know, a key relationship which mankind must follow, which Mm. is, of course, to follow the injunctions of Islam, its guidance, rules and prohibitions. So with that in mind, let's get started. I've got seven key principles I'd like to touch on today. And inshallah, we want to talk about Islam as a comprehensive and very distinctive way of life. It has very clear rules, laws, unlike socialism, and it has a true market, a fair market, based on sound, unchanging rule of law that is not open to exploitation and corruption like we see in capitalism. So the more you study Islam, the more amazement it generates, whether from rules of ownership, which are just a vague fog in capitalism, dominated by the wealthiest, right down to laws of international finance, corporate structure, and money markets. So let's look at the first section, which is on alleviating poverty. Um, Before I talk about this hadith, I want to start with an example, story of Abu Bakr Sadiq, the first caliph in Islam. And Omar ibn al-Khattab used to notice that Abu Bakr used to go um, in a different direction from his, his home every morning, early in the day. So one day Omar started to follow him and he saw Abu Bakr visiting a house and he spent some time there. And after the sun was up, he left the house. So this caused confusion in the eyes of, in the mind of Omo. He said, what was he doing? So he went and he knocked on the door. And a rather old lady, elderly, frail and blind, actually asked, you know, answered the door. So Omer said, who's that visitor coming to see you every day? And she said, I don't know who he is. <laughs> May Allah reward him. Wow. He cleans my house, swaps my clothes, and maybe he would cook some food for breakfast. Wow. And then he leaves. And Omo said, Does he do this every day? And she said, Yes, every day. May Allah bless this man. So Omo then explained that this was the Khalif in Islam. Wow. So, but this really exemplifies what Islam is all about. You know, here was the head of state, an international statesman, military leader and strategist, you know, busy with the multiple affairs of state, but conscious and aware of the basic needs of every single person and responsible for those needing help.
0: Mm.
1: So really it's carrying the responsibility of this hadith. You know, mm-hmm. There's no right for the son of Adam, except in the three, a house, a garment, and bread and water. So these are the basic rights for you know every human being, the son of Adam. Christian, Jew, Muslim, no faith, it doesn't matter. Food, shelter, and clothing. And of course, the, the ulama, the scholars, they will add to that education, health care, and of course, security to these mm-hmm. basics. So, again, it's not... So the notion of poverty is not some vague statistic looking at relative rates of poverty by region. (coughs) The Millennium Commission around the turn of the century, they put plans to make poverty history and they gave time scales of 15 years, which they failed to meet they failed miserably. Yet it can be done and it can be done with the right political will and action. I mean, if I give you a really contemporary example at the time of lockdown here in Britain in March 2020, then Prime Minister Boris Johnson stood up on our televisions and he said, we just want you to go and stay at your home. Now, when, when it was raised with him that many thousands in Britain, again, this is Britain, which is the fifth wealthiest country in the world, that many thousands in Britain don't actually have a home. They are homeless. They're sleeping rough on the streets at night. So the plans for lockdown were effectively in disarray. So they actually sorted it out. Within one week, within seven days, everyone that was homeless was given a home. So hotels, hostels, other places, and the basics of food and clothing and so on. So it can be done. And it was done. But the capitalist world we live in today is really indifferent, is reluctant. It doesn't really want to solve this crisis at home or abroad. So in Surah Arum, um, there's a direct reference to the fact that Allah is the one that provides the wealth, provides the wealth to us. And also, if we look in Surah al Fata, um, we can see, again, the same concept it is Allah that provides the wealth for you from the sky and the earth. Um, so we see engraving in the, this concept in the mind of Muslims. And again, there's more than 100 references to the fact that rizq or wealth is provided by Allah in the Quran. And, and these are just two verses which are, which are actually uh, stressing this. Mm. So we're developing a sense of humility in society. Islamic society, amongst particularly those who become rich and wealthy, you know, always putting in perspective that the wealth has been granted to to them, to us, by Allah, and it removes this sort of sense of arrogance or self-centred feelings. I mean, the other thing is it builds a generosity within the society, Mm -hmm. which is essential for dealing with the poor. Um, and, And lastly, Muslims are required to spend voluntarily beyond what's required of them in terms of according to the laws of the state so this is important building humility and putting it into perspective
0: and that's if i may just say uh, that that's such a, yeah. an important point i think you've made there in terms of uh, our, our awareness of wealth that the wealth as you say as the quran says as god says mm-hmm. is, a, is a gift from god it's not some kind of our absolute right that we have uniquely autonomously uh, created from nothing uh, and 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 y- y- the approach that you you're uh, explaining uh engenders a sense of responsibility, custodianship, the um and sense of humility uh and and um and charity and care for others it's a very different mentality than the uh the purely capitalist ethos which is about acquisition and uh alleged ownership yep. but it is a gift as you, as you say and um uh, i think that's as a very uh, sobering uh, thing to say
1: yes Thanks. and and it also In this verse, in Surat Talbah, it's actually, you know, um, take the sadaka, take the alms from their wealth in order to purify them and sanctify them with it. So, you know, again, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually commanding us, again, within the societal responsibility that it needs to be collected, it needs to be taken, and that is also part of this building (laughs) purification in the, the soul. It's a cleansing from greed self-indulgence or miserly behavior you know these are all things which uh the quran is actually um you know trying to keep us away from so Mm. so we see a development within the society of of a sort of a moral type basis Um, and without that system this economic system whichever system you have is not going to function it's not going to work if, if the people you know don't have this this humility you know, this, this uh, um, you know, absence of greed and miserliness, you know, the, these are really, uh, you know, conditions which, which we need to move away from. And again, if we look at capitalism, the dominant thought today, we can see that this lack of a moral system, you know, is heading us towards a collapse. You know, it really mm-hmm. is, is very sad. Um, again, uh, look at Sir Fajr. Again, similar concept. You know, the Quran was exposing the anti-moral values which characterize the behavior of Meccan society. You know, again, very little difference from what we see today. Um, and a reference to the defects. You know, so, no, you treat not the orphans with kindness and generosity, and you urge not one another on the feeding of the al the poor, and you devour wealth all with greed, and you love wealth fervently. You know, what? what a... What an incredible summary of, you know, the ills of we see in society, you know, the lack of concern for orphans and the poor, and and again, the focus on wealth and greed and and the accumulation of this. So, again, we want to build a society um, where greed will not be the basis and the orphans and the poor and others will not be ignored, and wealth is not really just to be accumulated for the sake of accumulation. So I think this uh, point on uh, the Islamic view on poverty, I think it's really best summarized by this statement, which is actually attributed to the second and fourth khalifas in Islam, which was if poverty were a man, I would kill it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it shows the seriousness with which uh, the Islam takes this. Uh, And again, there's another really nice example of uh, Omar bin al khattab walking the streets late at night and there was an example, he could hear children crying loudly mm. and he was concerned as the head of state as to why. Um, so he found that the, the mother was trying to lull her children into um, sleep by pretending to cook food mm. in an empty pot. Um, So Omer was really shocked when he entered the house and actually asked this woman about what was going on. And he then said, you know, why haven't you sought assistance from the public treasury? And the woman, not knowing his identity, again, she said to him, she said, who cares for the poor people? Um, Omer himself, he took grain, he carried a sack on his back to her and started to cook for the children. So she said, in response to this, she said, gee, I wish you you were the Caliph, you know, at this time. So again, it was examples where the responsibility is highlighted and Omer not only helping this woman, of course, you know, he would provide a a poor stipend from the public treasury to anyone that was poor, regardless of their belief um, uh, throughout his period. Um so this is really um again uh, if I just go to the next slide, uh, again the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he you know he really emphasized this point in, in so many places that here are two hadith um where he rejected even the slightest possibility, you know, even in fact of going to the extent of disowning a community which would allow any of its members to sleep hungry. Um Or uh, Tabarani narrated, again, a connection with the belief itself, you know, that, you know, if if you were in bed and your neighbor was hungry, is not a true believer. You know, so these are very strong uh, rejection of the concept of any poverty. So connecting it to one's faith and belief. Uh, So it's not just an administrative rule asking to provide the food in the neighborhood, you know, say that if you were not of concern for this, you know, question one's belief. Um, and again, you know, just to compare uh, in our society, in the last winter, which we're just coming out of, we had the specter of people trying to decide to whether to heat or to eat. And many struggled for either of those. So poverty became a statistic. They said that they want to lower it uh, a- a- as if it can never be defeated. Well, Islam says that's clearly not the case and indeed wasn't the case over many hundreds of years. I'm now just moving to the second section, which is um, distinct types of ownership in Islam, public property, private property, and state property. Again, unlike socialists that tried and failed to force forms of equality between people, including forced forms of state ownership, um, and, and unlike capitalists, which have some vague notions of freedom of ownership, which is, actually leads us towards really monopoly of wealth by oligarchs and so-called elites. Um, Islam actually set this out really clearly and nicely for us. Um, this hadith says, you know, the people have partnership in their ownership of forest, water, and fire. Um, it's narrated by Ahmed and Abu Dawood. Um, the, 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 the herbage, the forest and herbage um, is, refers public areas like parks, grazing, key grazing areas of the state, um, uh, waterways, lakes, and and so on. Uh, And the fire, um, interestingly, includes oil, gas, electricity. You know, this is a very key element of the public property or the public ownership. So, um, you know, I was just reading in the Guardian a few days ago that, that the oil and gas, which of course has been privatized, has been handed over to um, companies um, that in the last um, 50 years, it's been delivering about, you know, two and a half billion pounds of profits to these gas industry, the oil and gas industry. So the states and the fossil fuel industry um, is at $52 trillion worth of um, wealth going to them in these last 50 years. So, and, and again, the professor Aviel Verbruggen, uh, who is the author of this article, he said, it's enabled the, them to buy every politician in every system, uh, just through the, the, the transfer of this public property into the hands of companies. So it's really uh, an appalling situation that we have. Um, and again, I was just looking uh, at today or, or yesterday, you know, this is a, a chart, um, it actually shows over the last 10 years <clears throat> the price of gas you <clears throat> know, in British pounds. And, of course, we've seen this big spike up in terms of, you know, what happened with the COVID yeah. and then what happened with the Ukraine war and so on. But but it was a spike. It's a spike up. And um, Ofgem, Ofgem, which is supposed to be the regulator, actually announced this morning, they said that, um, that we can look forward to gas prices coming down a whopping 17 you know, percent uh, in the summer. You know, so the unit, right. right. So, so what's actually happened is in the last 10 years, these private companies with the agreement of their regulators have actually bumped up the price of gas to the public by six times and also they put up the price of standing charges you know, the per daily charge for having Alex, electricity and gas by three times so when the price comes down you know they, they're hardly giving us any benefit from the reduction of that yet we're sitting there you know with with uh, the average house now two thousand five hundred
0: pounds yeah yeah so I can just jump in there just for clarity's sake so Are you saying the Islamic position is, uh, if I can speak a sort of modern language, that public utilities like gas and and, and presumably water um, and so maybe maybe railways, I don't know, should be in the public domain, Um, but um, by implication, other areas of life, say, uh, you know, car manufacturing or whatever, should be, can be owned privately. So is there this combined partnership between public and private? Would that be, how you would conceptualize. Yes, that's correct. That's correct.
1: That, that's correct. The, um, the, the, the gas, the electric,
0: yeah. Please carry on.
1: So yes, yeah, the gas, the electricity, um, the rail network, it, it is possible to have a private rail um, 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 system if one wants, but again, the main road networks, the main rail networks, oil, gas, electricity, water, all of these are public property which need to be administered by the state on behalf of the people. Which, again, in this country, you you you'll recall, you know, we're of an age where we recall before they were privatised. You know, back in the seventies and the eighties, and uh, yes, there were some inefficiencies and there was some bad management. But again, it wasn't, you know. But just look at the railways. So look yeah. look at the disaster yeah. that we've seen since railways have been privatised. You know, so yeah. we've we've gone from the situation of of mm-hmm. having uh, something which which at least was uh, the publics, and again, now we're in a position where private companies, you know, can often charge what they like uh, and we don't get the benefit of that.
0: So um, can you, can you, I will. Uh, I will yeah. uh, further yeah. on. OK, so we established that that is a, what, what some people call a mixed economy. Um, but given I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of Marxism, I'll say this, but it doesn't mean that everything that Karl Marx said in Das Kapital was necessarily invalid or wrong. I think there were some observations in, in his analysis of capitalism for example, which um, have stood the test of time. Many things that he said are not perhaps so uh, durable. But one of those, uh, and you've already alluded to this, actually, is the tendency of capitalism to monopolisation, to uh, concentration of wealth and economic power in the hands of an elite, of of a few, multinational corporations and so on. So how how would the Islamic system then, uh, given that it does accept a mixed economy, um, deal with this apparently intrinsic tendency to concentration of monopoly power in the system because otherwise you're just going to have the status quo anti in a sense like you know you're going to have aversion like in germany for example mm-hmm. i was there recently they at least they pride themselves on having what they call a social economy where, where you do have social responsibility plus private ownership i'm not saying it works i i don't know enough about germany but at least that's the the uh, the line that they're giving about their their whole system so how, how would the, economic, the Islamic system prevent the, the monopolization of wealth and power in the hands of a few? That was kind of my question. Yes.
1: I mean, there are some very specific rules I haven't included in the presentation today, but I, I can pro- provide you some evidences later, yeah. uh, which, which are specifically against monopoly provision. Right. You know, so, for example, um, intellectual property rights. Uh, We do not accept uh, the intellectual property rights. Again, it's a a matter which uh, many uh, would argue about, you know, because they're they're, they're very protective of that. Uh, But also the corrupt pricing mechanisms, you know, those which um, set prices, for example, to dominate a market. You know, Mm -hmm. if, if you become a major player, nothing wrong with becoming a major player in say the car industry or something like that. But if you start to then destroy the market by massively undercutting the price, um, that is like a monopoly practice. You know, you're know, you actually trying to corner the market so that others cannot get into that market. And that is absolutely forbidden in Islam. So, so we will be uh, aware of those matters. And, and what we find in Islam is actually there is a great encouragement of competition between right. companies. I'm going to touch on the question of, of companies and partnerships in, really in the last the second to last section of this. Okay. But in that, there is a great encouragement for competition. You know, companies do well and some of them fail. And, and this is uh, one of the beauties of Islam. And right. it's within a regulatory environment where the rules will not allow price fixing. In fact, famous hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, I will not be a price fixer because somebody asked him, they said, you know, prices are rising. Can't you fix the prices? And he says, I hope to meet Allah azawajal on the Day of Judgment without a mathlimah, without an oppression on my back for fixing prices. So what that actually meant was that he was not going to intervene in the market to fix the price. So the market would deal with it because people would go for substitution. You know, so for example, if you know, if some of the goods you were looking to get was really scarce and the price went very high, then you would naturally move to something else. You know, you know if it was a foodstuff, you would, you would have to substitute with something else which was more, more available. But Islam does not um, do price fixing and does not interfere in, in those matters, but at the same time has rules against hoarding, which I'm going to touch on, and has rules against monopoly. So the rules on hoarding which which are later in the presentation um, ensure that people cannot um, be you know manipulating markets to their own advantage okay yeah okay, okay. let's let's move on um, again um, so let man consider his food how we pour it and uh, pour water in showers and split the earth fragments and cause grain to grow and and, and, and olives and dates. Again, another view, beautiful verse, uh, which is showing, you know, elements of the ownership, you know, which is provision for you and your cattle. Okay, so clear linkage back to the belief system in Islam, and again, the core matter we've been discussing, the rizq, the provision. So again, we own these things, we participate, we benefit from them. But again, it's rizq from Allah. It's not something that that we have done, even if we were great successful farmers we know and farmers know that it's in God's hands. Um, Now, uh, moving on from this, we can see that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said Hmm. in one Hadith, whoever revives a barren land, then it belongs to him. So again, Hmm. within um, the private ownership, we have the opportunity to own land. And not only that, if we have a barren land, if we have a dead land, if we have a land which has been abandoned, uh, the person can basically uh, use that. You can fence it. And Omar bin al-Khattabi clarified this further. He said in one statement, he said, whoever revives an uncultivated land, it belongs to him. And the fencer has no right after three years. Now, if you fenced a land and then you did nothing with it, I'm talking about agricultural land, and you did nothing with it, well, then again, Mm. it would be subject to going back to the state and the state could then reallocate it to somebody that uses it.
0: On that very hadith, I, I, I've just finished reading uh, a book by uh, John Locke, the British political philosopher of the 17th century, uh, as his Second Treatise of Government, and he says exactly this. Interestingly, this is in the 17th century, uh, nearly a thousand years after the Prophet upon him be peace. Um, basically, it's, uh, it's an unenclosed land, and that if you if you cultivate it, then you, you, it becomes your property um, by virtue that you are tilling it and creating wealth from it and so on. He's very specific about that. Um, but if you don't and it goes to wastage, then it's no longer your property. So in other words, you can't just sit on property and not use it or like sitting on a an empty house um, that's yeah. not used when there are, po- there, are uh, there are homeless people. He's very much a, and it was quite a moral vision of, of property. And it's interesting to see that it was anticipated here by the prophet, literally a thousand years beforehand. absolutely fascinating. Yes, apparently. it was, it was a- absolutely. And uh, as we see in so many
1: things, um, you know, later thinkers and intellectuals and writers you know, have mm. borrowed Islamic concepts uh, knowingly or unknowingly or what their sources are you know, is obviously a matter for debate. Um, but yes. again, you know, we see the concept there that the land is to be utilized. And, and this is why in Islamic society, we have an incredible dynamic of small land holdings And um, this, um, you know, we'll talk about taxation, but this also encourages, you know, uh, a a generation of of a a land tax, which which is, you know, maybe one of the biggest sources of revenue of the state. Um, So again, everyone has the right to land ownership, but there's the responsibility of the three years. Uh, Now, there's another really nice example I was gonna touch on, Um, sorry if the text is a little bit small on this, but in, in essence, Bilal bin al Harith al Munzni came to the Prophet wa sallam, and he asked for land. So this was effectively a state land and asked to be allocated to him. Uh, and, and the Prophet wa sallam, did allocate it to him. Now, when Omar was Khalif, he noticed or was raised with him, he said that um, the Prophet, peace be upon him, allocated you a really long and broad piece of land. Um, and again, the Prophet wouldn't refuse people in these matters and uh, and uh, he replied yes that's the case and then he said but look at what was within your strength to retain and return to us what is beyond your capacity and strength such that we divide it between muslims and he said by allah i will not do so <laughs> this is bilal he said mm-hmm. by allah i will not do so over something the messenger of allah allocated to me and Omar said, he said, by Allah, you will do so. And, and he actually then took that land and, um, and, right. and was actually, you know, not all of the land. It was basically that Bilal uh, bin al-Harith would have a piece which was suitable for him. And that which is way beyond his, his needs and use and was not utilizing uh, would come back to the state. And the state would then reallocate it to the people that would be needing it. So, hmm. again, this is a, a beautiful example of how the uh, Islam would function uh, within people's needs. Um, and again, you look at the Muslim world today, and, and uh, of course, the non-Muslim world as well. I mean, in terms of who is monopolizing vast swathes of land, you know, it, you know, we have a feudal type system. The people in Pakistan, they became serfs, you know, merely working for a feudal landlord. And again, Islam does not accept this at all. So um, sorry, just before I, I touch on that, the, the, of course, I talked about private ownership and, and public property. The third element, which I'll just touch on briefly, includes state, which is what we call state property. So um, right. so it, the, this <clears throat> was an allocation of a state property. So, for example, a conquered land would normally be Haraji land and would then be subject to either the existing people which happened in, say, the conquests of Iraq and Syria, uh, or it, it could be allocated to, to others. Um, but again, the state property includes government offices, some forms of wealth from taxation, in the Beit al for example, Khiraj tax, I'll come on to that. Uh, lands which are not owned by anyone uh, or which are left from somebody who dies. Um, those which are not particularly public property lands um, so they can be individually owned, uh, but they are in the hands of the state. so the state will look after them and and, uh, and will then allocate them to the people i mean when islam returns when the, when the Islamic state returns, you know we're going to have masses of palaces and all these sorts of things in which these uh, these princes and emirs and kings and whatever uh you know have been monopolized and that 's all state land and it's available for for the people it's It's not to be monopolized in the hands of these uh, corrupt people, so the the public will have an opportunity within them, but they'll be managed by the state. Right. Okay. So I've got another section. This is a new section, which is on taxation, which is everyone's favorite subject. <laughs> um, again, <laughs> so certain talba take sadaka, arms from their wealth in order to purify them and sanctify them with it. So um, we have zakat, which is allocating a certain amount of wealth for the poor, from the original wealth of the wealthiest in society. So this is a right for the poor, uh, rather than some sort of favor. You know, if you look at Western concepts, we say that, oh, you know, the philanthropist, you know, the the, the charitable giving is, is a really good thing and what have you, but it's kind of optional. But this is mm-hmm. not an optional matter in Islam. In fact, we've got very clearly defined issues. So we look at, again, Surah uh verse 60 Apologies for the Arabic not showing up, um, but we can put that in later. Um, Doesn't like the font, apparently. But again, this verse sets out eight categories of people who are to be the recipients of the zakat. So the poor and the very poor and those employed to collect the funds uh, to attract the hearts of those recently inclined or inclining towards Islam to free the captives, uh, for those in debt, uh, those in Allah's cause, uh, fighting in Allah's cause, for the wayfarer, and effectively a traveler who is cut off from everything, and it is a duty imposed by Allah, and Allah is all-knower, all-wise. This is a, this is a pillar of Islam, as we know, and um, as also it's, um, it, it's an obligation. It's 2.5%. It's of the wealth that somebody has over the course of a year above the nasab value, if we look at the nasab value, it's uh, 80, 85 grams of gold, which at today's uh, reckoning is around about four thousand five hundred pounds. So somebody that would have that uh, over the course of the year would be paying zakat of two and a half percent on this. Um, so it it would it would be a key element, and, but it's going to these eight categories and it's not going to anything else, uh, which is a very distinctive thing because in, in normal Western taxation systems, it's kind of a free-for-all. They, they, they collect money here, there and everywhere and uh, they use it on what they like, uh, mostly debt and paying interest on debt to bankers, as, as it turns out. The other thing is it, it's collected in a very proportionate way. So it's collected from those which can afford it. You know, those which don't have the nisab value, you know, they're not paying zakat. Um, and, and if there is a need for anything beyond this, so, for example, if there's an emergency, let's say there's a major earthquake, for example, um, and the state's uh, coffers in the Beit mal which is the state treasury, was empty, again, the Khalif needs to collect the money because this is an obligation for the Muslims to house and clothe and feed the people that have just lost their homes, you know, in, in an earthquake. So uh, the caliph will go to the, the public first of all. He will ask for, uh, Sadiqah will ask for um, donations, and again the Muslims historically will be very generous in doing this, um, or or even a loan to do this. If that was still not sufficient, again the caliph could raise a tax on the way that zakat is done. So, for example, he could say maybe we need one percent. Of your wealth, which is above this nasab value, which you've had over the course of a year, so this is one way of doing it. Um, but it's of note that in the time of the Prophet peace be upon him, he was able to finance most of the battles and the military campaigns through mm. voluntary contributions and charity. You know, so that, again, the Muslims very generous and indeed very wealthy. And when you actually look at uh, the amounts of wealth that many Muslims had. Um, you can you can see this um, so um, just a, a, a brief point if we compare that to capitalism we can see that you know there's a lot of people scoffing at the notion of wealth taxes and they, they use all sorts of reasons they say people will avoid it they'll put it into offshore companies they'll do this They no doubt they do that but again this is why I started this discussion with really this creedal point which is that Zakat is a cleansing. That this is a purification. That this is a religious obligation. This is not something which you know you've got you know some battle going on between a tax collector and the public and and politicians which are you know imposing all sorts of things. So so we need to look at this creedal aspect you know which is against this notion of 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 greed is good, which unfortunately dominates Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. Now I. I've put here, again, I'm not going to go through in great depth on these matters, but I will just touch on them briefly, that sort of the key revenue sources that we see in Islam is that we have zakat, as I've mentioned, um, 2.5% of the value over 85 grams. Uh, Kharaj and Usha, again, I've touched on Kharaj. Again, the Kharaji land, which is, uh, Ushri land includes uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Arab Peninsula. These are lands which... You know, people came willingly to Islam. So they have a slightly different taxation structure uh, than the Haraji land. Uh, the jizya, which is, um, you know, mature non-Muslim males which are able to pay, um, which is, uh, you know, which, which uh, let, let me just touch on that for a moment. In the time of Omar bin al-Khattab, he used to levy uh, the wealthy in the society um, Four dinars of gold, uh, which is a, a dinar is four point two five grams of gold, so that 's seventeen grams and today that'd be worth about eight hundred and seventy pounds you know so a wealthy person a wealthy non muslim citizen of the Islamic state would pay eight hundred and seventy pounds of jizya now now that 's a that 's a fair measure because we 're talking about in gold and gold has maintained its value i mean it, this is we 're not talking about some paper currency like the US dollar or the pound or something which is always devaluing. We're talking about something that maintains its value. So that's not too bad. I mean, the middle class people would pay two dinars, which is about 435 pounds if we convert gold to pounds. Uh, The lower paid worker, one dinar. So the non-Muslim non-worker, 218 pounds. So again, hardly an oppressive level for the non-Muslim ahl dhimma, the people of the contract So from a tax deal, uh, the non-Muslims had a very good deal in the Islamic State. You know, in fact, when you consider they don't pay zakat, so they weren't paying two and a half percent of their wealth over the uh, Nisab value. They were paying a jizya. Um, I mean, the other thing I'll mention, I mean, there was a a wonderful example um, in the time of the Khalif, uh, the Abbasid Khalif Harun al-Rashid. He was talking about Haraj uh, and he said, he spoke to a passing cloud over Baghdad, saying, you may drop your rain wherever you wish. Your Kharaj will come back to me. Mm. Meaning that, you know, the, the Islamic state was so vast and that, that rizik, you know, that wealth, uh, you know, generated from that rain, you know, was going to be falling all over the Muslim lands. And, you know, the Kharaj, which is based on the productive capacity of that land, you know, the tax assessors would go out and say, Oh no! You have X acreage or or, or jaribs of of, of land, and this is what you should be attributing to it. It was quite fair. It was not like you know, not like 50 percent, which the Romans would do, or 90 percent or 100 percent, which the Romans would sometimes do. It was you know maybe 10 percent, you know, this type of thing. You know the you know there's incentive for the farmers to do well because you know they obviously had to pay a haraj on the land, but uh, that they also would be, you know, uh, generating wealth for themselves beyond that. So again, just one example, Abu Yusuf narrated in uh, the book uh, Kitab al-Kharaj, he said that the Haraj revenues from the southern part of Iraq during the time of Omar bin al khattab reached 100 million dirhams. A durham is 2.98 grams of silver. So again, today it's about pound eighty. So we're talking about close to 180 million pounds worth of karaj in the time of Omar bin al-Khattab, which is really an incredible amount uh, for 1,400 years ago. It just shows you how productive those lands were in terms of this model which Islam provides us with in terms of encouraging the utilization of that land. Um, and, you know, that land is is really... Uh, far and wide and again would be the the situation that we we will see again today um now uh i'm again so again i won't go through all of these The public property proceeds like oil and gas uh, again they can be sold overseas uh state properties sold i mentioned that inheritance from those without inheritors and of course last but not least in my list was a wealth stolen by the corrupt regimes, which which is quite significant. I mean, just before I move on, um, I will say that what is significant is what is not on my list here, and which is that, uh, so what is not a source of revenue or tax in Islam is income tax, capital gains tax, business taxes, council taxes, fuel taxes, environmental taxes, VAT or other consumption taxes, and in fact, you know, in the West, we have little or no wealth taxes, a little bit related to capital gains, I suppose you could call it, or a little bit related to inheritance tax in some circumstances, so in essence, people have, the wealthy have, and of course, there's no zakat, so they have a high incentive to accumulate wealth, in fact, they hoard it, so this is one of the key problems that we see in the West today, and You know the income tax, the business tax, the council tax. All of these are really hitting, uh, you know, the middle classes and the poorer people really heavily. So it it, it's really a a dramatically different approach. Now I'll go into a new section here, which is Section Four, which is circulation of wealth, Um, and again the profit. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam, was reciting this verse from uh, Surah Takathur, Al-Hakamu Takathuru, he said, competition for wealth diverts you. Uh, And he then explained, he went on in this hadith and he said, the son of Adam boasts, my wealth, my wealth. O son of Adam, you have truly earned, have you truly earned any wealth but what you ate and consumed or put on and wore out? Or spent in charity, so it remained. Sahih Muslim. So the Prophet Sallallahu you know, was really making this point. Again, in the West we have this concept, you know it well, um, Paul, which is that you cannot take it with you. You know, if you have this wealth, you can't take it with you. So so what's it doing? So again, Islam stresses this very highly. So um Actually, in another hadith, I didn't list it here, but it, it's a, if you want, if someone wants to look it up, it's in the Book of Muslim, which is that uh, when a person dies, his deeds come to an end except for three, sadaqa jariya, which is a continuous charity, or knowledge from which benefit is gained, or a righteous child who prays for him. Um, so what about your material wealth? What about all of these millions and billions, which, you know, the oligarchs and others are sort of, fighting over to accumulate and to see who is the most. So, so this hadith is, hadith is really stressing that you don't have it. Uh, it, it. It came from Allah. It's for spending, for gifting, for wearing, um, and, of course, charity and so on and so forth. Of course, we, we'll invest it in valid businesses and Islamically. Um, and, but, of course, if you hold any of that back, um, maybe you're saving for a valid purpose. Um, you're going to be paying two and a half percent zakat on it. So again, there's a key incentive in Islam to spend, to gift, to invest, and not just hold it. So again, this is really a wealth circulation measure, uh, and it's certainly not for hoarding, which is the next uh, slide. So, insert uh, harsher, you know, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kayla dolitun Bainal um, in order that it does not merely make a circuit amongst the wealthy um, so um, the the question of the, um, uh, the the circulation of the wealth is that it's it, it is um, uh, you know this verse encapsulates so why so, so well why capitalism is is actually not meeting the needs of the masses because you um, it's actually encouraging a circuit of wealth amongst the wealthy. Um, it doesn't, it's not concerned about the poverty. It's not concerned about the distribution of wealth. So in Islam, we're focused on zakat, on sadaqah, on spending, on investing you know, in a halal manner um, rather than accumulation, whereas nobody's really concerned about this question about uh, you know, the, the fact that it, the accumulation of wealth. So we have this concept of, of the 1% coming. Um, so, um, anyway, so th- there's just one other verse here, one other, um, <coughs> uh, hadith I wanted to touch on here, talking about hoarding, uh, which is that, um, again, if you see, uh, in the verses, a painful torment to those who hoard gold and silver and do not spend it in Allah's cause. So, again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is, again, reminding us that the, um, the, the question of the, the, the hoarding of the wealth is absolutely forbidden. Um, so uh, the mechanism...
0: Yeah. Sorry, just a comment on the extraordinary verse. that, um, Especially in medieval Europe, the, there was a great scandal uh, about the way monks particularly were, were hoarding wealth. Some of the monasteries in England, for example, and not just in England, but in France and other countries, were fabulously wealthy, uh, were, were well known for their great opulence. And this caused great scandal... And it triggered uh, this the the uh, the splitting apart of Christendom itself with the rise of the reformers, people like Martin Luther and so on. Uh, and it, it was the end of Christendom, basically, because of the scandal attached to this. And then this was centuries after these words were uh, revealed. But it was one of the causes of the anti-religious animus uh, that we've seen so much in Europe because of the the way uh, that monks, particularly, uh, and other religious institutions, um, scandalously. Uh, owned so much wealth, and there was so much poverty around. Uh, so, th- th- this is a very uh, relevant verse, particularly for Europe. Fundly enough, yeah.
1: I mean, if we look at the, uh, you know, the Vatican, you know, we look at, yeah. uh, okay. at the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. uh, in, incredible holdings of wealth, and you know, so um, is it? you know, yeah. said it? It, it, it's you know, what is the wealth for? You know, you know, why why is it you know being held like this? This is really the the question that we need to be asking in in society. Um, So, uh, okay, um, a new section here, um, which is that. Let me just double check
0: here. I think this is an yeah. This idea of usury. uh, Yeah. uh, Could you could you explain? or but perhaps you were going to actually sorry about what what or usury actually means.
1: Yeah yes um so usury is is it's an unfair increase in uh like a monetary asset so typically people would look at it like a loan and you see a loan and there's a uh a charge and and like an interest rate charged on that loan uh but also uh, so that's clearly forbidden in, in islam um you know meaning that if somebody gives a loan you know you you're entitled to have the loan repaid and repaid as quickly as possible but it it cannot be with interest. Um, And now I know in in, in Christian and other uh, faiths and and also uh, if we go back in history, we can see that there's a debate about, oh, you know, usury, it's uh, over a certain value. You know, so they're trying to say, no, 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 it's a small amount is okay. Uh, Islam forbids it completely.
0: Um, And again, we used used to be forbidden actually in Christianity in the early medieval period and Judaism, um the the same view as we find in islam was actually found in judaism and uh, judaism and christianity but today of course it's very different christian churches have no problem with interest at all that they've completely changed their teaching or abandoned the teaching in their own scriptures
1: yeah no no that's right um and um i i think the the, the key thing is is that um I mean, I've got another couple of slides which also clarify this. But, you know, we, we, we looked at the ancient civilizations, Babylonian, Assyrian, you know, or, or Athens, Sparta. You know, they, they, they used to, we had a concept like of debt slavery in which the person's freedom or indeed even his family's freedom depended or hinged upon him repaying these loans at interest. So, again, it was a very useful means for enslaving all sorts of people. Um, and again, we see similar forms of enslavement today. Uh, it's all very um, nicely presented, but it, it's, it's still the same thing. Um, and there's a couple of other verses I'll just uh, put on this point. Um, again, the room I said, and that usurious money um, would be... Um, which you give to others in order that it may increase from others' wealth. So again, so this is this has no increase with Allah, meaning it Allah does not accept it at whatsoever. But that which you give in zakat, seeking Allah's countenance, then those they shall have manifold increase. You know, so so basically, what it's saying is that any form of um, increase expected from uh, from what, what you were providing, like a, a loan. To, to somebody else was, 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 uh, was not accepted. You know, it should be returned as it is because you're taking from their wealth effectively. You know, the, the typical transaction we see today is like a bank. You know, somebody's got a business idea, so they get a loan. The bank is going to take uh, all sorts of commitments based on collateral. So if the loan is not repaid in a timely manner, they could take the collateral. Um, and if it is repaid in a timely manner, they take interest. And that interest is basically taking from that person's wealth. Yeah. Unfairly, So the bank wins both ways. You know, when the person pay, pays back, they get the interest. And when they don't pay back, they get the assets. They get the collateral. So, again, it's very fair, un- unfair. Um, so uh, the, the last point uh, on this is, again, the verse, beautiful verse it says, who is it that will lend to Allah a good loan, which Allah will multiply many times over for them? and they will have an honorable reward. You know, so so what is this good loan? Well, the good loan is a loan without interest uh, in which Allah will multiply the rewards for it. So another um, evidence uh, given is that, uh, that that Allah will count as two, you know, like a second reward will be counted like sadaqah of a second loan given. So, so there, there is a, an encouragement for loaning and helping people in Islam, but obviously... It's a good loan. It's a loan which has no interest on it, uh, and that will have an, an honorable reward. Now, of course, we have a bad loan. You know, what is a bad loan? And, and the really bad loans, I would say, is, is like the, uh, the IMF. You know, so we see like the confessions of an uh, economic hitman I was looking at earlier today, which is a, a book written by John Perkins in 2004. You know, he laid out in great detail uh, the modern-day enslavement Of nations um, to interest based debt. You know, just looking at some data on Pakistan, uh, currently paying 21% rates of interest on its domestic banking debts. You know, 9,000. 21%, do you say? That's right, 21%. This is the government of Pakistan paying to domestic banks. That's extraordinary. Unbelievable. You know, 9,400 billion rupees uh, in the last quarter.
0: Sorry to interrupt again. Who, who is this loan from that's that been charged 21%? This is the domestic banking sector, which obviously right. will have
1: relationship with foreign banks. It's not like they would be just local banks, but we'll yeah. have relationship with foreign banks and they will, they will pay 21% on that. But wow. the other one, which is that IMF um, loans, they're paying full 85% of government revenues raised is going to the payment of interest. So that's, according to the next federal government budget, 7,600 billion rupees in interest on the debt. So again, this is the great evil that we see, is that this interest keeps compounding up. It never gets repaid. It might get rescheduled. It might get retitled. It might whatever. And not only that, the IMF will dictate to the relevant country <clears> They'll put <throat> what they call conditionalities, which is opening up the economy to foreign investment, devaluing your currency, privatizing key assets, and much, much more. So it really is um, a, a horrendous situation that we see not only throughout the Muslim world, but of course throughout Africa and elsewhere, uh, where this is the de facto, de facto standard. And and it's it's really interesting that when you look at the IMF and the World Bank, that You know, the the key signatories, the original signatories, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, the key movers of this institution, you know, they don't follow the IMF. They don't follow its dictates and its encouragements and its suggestions. So so that, I think, tells you something um, as it is, really. Um, So... So I have a new section, Section Six. Uh, we're nearly at the end, um, which is Hadith of the Prophet wa sallam, talking about companies and partnerships and company structure. Uh, and again, uh, the Prophet Wasallam he said that Allah says, "I am the third of the two partners unless one of them betrays his companion." So if one of them betrays his companion, I withdraw from them. Mm. So again. Um, Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually talking about a company here and is actually talking about a partnership. So we can see from the sunnah of the Prophet, peace be upon him, various forms and structures of company partnerships. And again, the features that we can see of those um, is that, for example, mudaraba or Mufawada um, are companies whereby there is a body partner and a capital partner. Um, so in a, in a Mutharaba arrangement, you have one person doing the work in the company and the, and the other one putting up the capital. Um, so they will share the profits in accordance to the agreement that they have. It might be 50-50, it might be 80-20, it, it depends on, on the company. Um, and they will share any losses in accordance with the capital, which basically means the, the one who is the capital partner will take the loss in that type of arrangement. Um, Other companies are, for example, Mufawada, uh, slight variation, could be multiple partners who are the working side or the body side and multiple partners who are the capital side. And again, um, enables a sharing of the profits according to the agreement and will enable a sharing of the profits and according to the capital put forward. Um, so, So these are the standard types of structures. But in comparison to the typical capitalist system that we have, we have um, um, limited companies, you know, where they're limiting the liability. Islam does not allow limited liability. You have to fulfill your obligations in Islam. Um, Again, capitalist country companies, I think the French have a very quaint saying, they call them SA, society Anonyme. You know, meaning that it's an anonymous society. You know, who is this company? Who actually is the body? You know, who are you actually contracting with? You know, who are you dealing with? The same thing in the uh, limited companies. The same thing in the stock market companies, that, which we see. You know, you have to go to a stock market register uh, of, of the shareholders and surprise, surprise, most of them will be listed down as nominee companies, which means that, you know, Joe Smith and, and, and Jane Smith, um when, when buying shares will put it in a uh, a name of, of a nominee company so nobody really knows that they are own owners in that company so uh, and again the idea of these companies is to keep this level of distance away from the actual people who are contracting with the company and the actual owners so this is something islam does not allow you know islam says no 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 we need to have body elements in the companies and the partners need to be known and the partners need to have an agreement between themselves and indeed the company needs to have a life term. It needs to, it might be for two years or five years or something. And then of course it could be um, uh, reformed Uh, after that, reformulated. But the idea is, is that it's very much above board. You know, if I go to a company and they provide a service and they don't provide the service, I want to know who I'm going to, you know, raise uh, the issue with. So, we have this transparency in in, in Islam and um, we have the notion, which is very important, of a sharing of risks and rewards. So mm. people going into an Islamic company know that it can fail, you know, all companies can fail. So your capital is at risk. Uh, but equally, uh, you can have the rewards of a profit. So the re- rewards profit will be properly accounted for and will be distributed in accordance with that. But the, the Western capitalist approach now is so much dependent upon um, the, the banking sector, you know, the, the, the bond market sector, which is the interest-based, which we were talking about before, mm. which, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, the, 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 the banks are taking a risk-free reward because, as I said, you know, they're going to earn the interest on the debt, and they're going to confiscate assets if there's a failing so so they're not really partners in the company at all all they're doing is providing some funding in in a unique relationship which provides them with usury and provides them with assets if the company fails was the Islamic company if you put your capital up you are going to be rewarded based upon not some fixed level of interest but based upon the uh, earnings and a share of earnings that the company generates um, so this is much fairer. And of course, you're taking a risk if the company fails. Um, so this is like an equity type uh, formation. I won't go into any great detail of the stock market, but, but in essence to say a lot of it has become almost like a gambling institution, because, you know, the person that buys shares in, in, um, in um, your namesake, you know, BT, not blogging theology, but, but a British Telecom, Um, will actually be gambling on British telecom, making increasing profits and the share price going up. So the person actually buying those shares is not actually part of it, but is basically, you know, gambling their way in and out of of, of a market, which is basically going to move in relation to confidence in the economy, confidence in that company, its earnings and so on and so forth, which is really a step away from what the company is really all about. Um, so um, companies are uh, actually an area which uh, it, it has led to a lot of money going out of circulation rather than being in circulation because, you know, we have this problem with, with the interest system, which is that, you know, those with the money, they make a decision to invest or not based upon a level of interest rates, based upon confidence in the, in the stock market and these types of things, whereas in Islam, basically, it's you invest in a proper Islamic company, you gift your money, you spend your money, uh, you, you know, and, and so on, and so forth. And, and otherwise, you're going to be paying zakat two and a half percent and you're not going to be hoarding it. So, so this is a very distinctive way and, and led to a very dynamic uh, uh, economy where those with capital would be investing all the time. And, and sometimes they were very successful and the, and, and the capital would grow. And sometimes they were less successful, and it wouldn't. Uh, but that's 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 life. That's what happens. Okay. Um, so again, uh, I mentioned we mentioned this verse earlier, which is, uh, yeah. um, you know, that uh, this is a, a, a sort of talba. Um, so the the last section I want to talk on is what I call real money. Um, you know, so we have pounds, shillings, and pence, and we have dollars, and we have euros and and all that and soon to be digital money and bitcoin and and maybe central bank digital currencies are coming around the corner and so on and so forth but islam has money based on gold and silver now if i could just touch base from from what we call in Asul al-Fiqh, the foundations of the islamic jurisprudence you know the two important matters are that um things by their nature are allowed unless there are there's a specific prohibition so we see in the quran prohibition against pork, prohibition against alcohol uh, and, and so on. Many other matters specifically mentioned, um, but things. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so we can look at that. But actions require evidence. This is the second matter. So if you're a central government or, or, or central bank or, or the Baitul mal in the Islamic State, as we call it, um, what is the money and what money can you issue? And what money can you manage and what money will you raise? And how will your economy function? So again, when we look at the Sunnah of the Prophet in terms of the functioning of the Islamic society, and also Mm -hmm. from Ijmaat Sahaba, in terms of the the, Mm -hmm. the companions afterwards, uh, the Khilafah Rashida and so on, we can see that it is gold and silver is money. Uh, And in fact, gold and silver was money for millennia, and was millennia before Islam, and it was, you know, during the Islamic periods, even in the Western world, you know. So, for example, we had a, a gold or, or silver standard in in the UK up until mm-hmm. World War One, uh, and then we had a gold standard in between World War One and World War Two. Um, so, so this is not something of ancient history. This is something which which is actually quite yeah. recent and actually is the reality of
0: what Islam uh, says. And uh, I, 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 I so. Just can- just to jump in there a second, um, you know, uh, you've allu- you've touched on it briefly, but for this to happen, of course, the Muslims uh, need to have an imam, a, a khalifa, to to establish these things. You just can't do it in your local town. You, you, have, there has to be um, s- some uh, uh, system to implement this uh, umma-wide. I guess.
1: Yes. No. Exactly. Uh, obviously. Um, today, you know, we are sadly leaderless and we do not have an imam, we do not have a khalifa. Uh, It's really on our necks because we have to give the bayah to the khalifa or the imam, and and we haven't had that since 1924, sadly. So so this is really the burning um, political issue of of the ummah today. Um, But again, on this point, again, nothing to stop you having gold or silver. Obviously, you need to pay zakat Mm -hmm. on it. So, for example, if you were saving to buy a, a car, uh, or saving, you know, for uh, somebody's wedding or, or, or to buy a house or something, you know, even though you're saving for a valid reason and you're not hoarding the money, um, you would pay zakat on that, you know. So, so if that was uh, pounds or that was gold or silver, uh, you're still going to be paying the zakat on it. Um, but again, getting back to this point, the evidence is, again, we can see numerous places uh, in in the uh, Quran and in the, the the Sunnah literature, so for example, Malik Ibn Al said the Prophet sallallahu said that trading gold for silver is riba, unless it is hand to hand on the spot, uh, in the book of Bukhari. So again, uh, uh, the the question of gold, silver, uh, barley, wheat, um, uh, the the salt, you know, the, these are the ribawi. Um, matters which need to be traded in the spot market um, so for example you know the question of golding, uh, trading gold for silver or or for a deferred settlement some people might say okay I want to trade gold for silver but I'll, I'll deliver my gold next week again this would not be acceptable you know so we need to be trading on the spot market uh, in this on this on this matter Uh, But again, I'm just using this as an example to say that these are some of the multiple evidences which are telling us that gold and silver is money in Islam. And indeed, that is the basis upon which it will be when the next Khilafah Rashida is is established. You know. So also, for example, we have the Nisab value uh, denominated in amounts of, of gold. I mentioned it earlier, 85 grams of gold is the Nisab value over which Somebody will pay zakat, uh, zakat on livestock. Uh, it's a level on, on which punishments are applied. You know, cut the hand of the thief, one quarter of a gold dinar and up. The blood money for the person unlawfully killed, uh, a thousand dinars. You know, you're talking serious amounts in some of these areas. Uh, all denominated according to the Quran and Sunnah uh, in, in gold and silver. So uh, this mm. is really the way forward Um, and and the last point I'll mention on that is is basically you know we're you know we're here suffering about inflation at the moment and and one of the key elements of inflation is because of this uh, devaluing of paper currencies it's so easy for the politicians of today to basically run large deficits because with those deficits you know they are effectively um, using the uh, opportunity to print money you know they don't have to have uh, gold or silver. Uh, you know they, they can. They don't have to balance the books. Uh, they don't have to actually raise uh, taxation to have a, have a balanced policy. Uh, they they just go to the the never never world and say, well we'll we'll borrow money. And indeed today, you know there are a lot of people saying, well we've got a problem in Britain because the gilt market, the ten year bond, is dropping heavily in price, which means that. You know, the world is looking at Britain and saying, well, we don't actually like your, um, your economy. It's not doing so well. You're actually too heavily indebted uh, and you should do something about that. So, so you know, th- these are telling us as well that the Islamic system really fights inflation. There can be inflation. There can be inflation in certain goods, as is naturally. There's a shortage in one good or a surplus in another. So the price of one would go down and, and the price of another would go up. That, that's natural. We saw that over hundreds of years. But the notion that everything declines always um, because of really a devaluing in the, in the value of the pound and the euro and the dollar um, really is obscene because, you know, we, we're, we're, we're beholden to a paper based money system. Um, and even when they bring digital currencies and that will be even further away from the real world of, of gold and silver Okay, so just to end I'm just going to wrap up with a few ideas some final thoughts um, You know, Islam is not just individual of course we pay our zakat You know, we know it's an obligation and that will be accounted on the day of judgment for paying our zakat, but Islam said, collect the zakat as well. I, I've talked about some of these evidences. So, so you know, it, 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 that doesn't mean, you know, some local charity, you know, which, which is going to, you know, take the zakat from you. This is something that actually needs to be functioning, you know, w- in an organized manner, and it needs to be used for these categories of the zakat, <coughs> you know, the eight categories. You can't do that individually, and you can't do that from just charities doing that. Um, I talked about the key of the... Uh, solving poverty, you know, and and, and and the times in which it was solved, you know, when when the, the Khulafa uh, would say, you know, to, to the, the emissaries and they say, go and collect the zakat uh, from Egypt and from North Africa, they would say and distribute that zakat to the poor, you know, they would often come back and say, well, I didn't distribute any zakat, sorry, because there were no poor. There were no poor people. And again, there are many examples of the, of the years in which when Islam was applied that there were no poor people, because that's basically the natural mechanism of this distribution of the wealth, which we saw. Uh, and again, the final step, of course, was the, was the zakat. And, and if there were no poor people, miskeen and so on, it, it would go to the other categories. Um. Thirdly, you know, we, we really need strong leadership and strong sanctions, which Islam provided. Um, you know, for example, in the time of Umar bin al khattab when he would send out his governors and the governors would come back to Medina after the end of their term, you know, they, they might be there for a year or two years uh, a, 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 as a leader of a particular region. he would quite famously go to their saddlebags and, and uh, basically... Confiscate anything that was in their saddlebags. They basically said, "Well, you know what we you were doing there uh, for for the sake of Allah uh, and the messenger, you weren't there to, to to feather your pockets. So if you actually all of this money that somehow came to you, uh, I'm taking it and putting it in the baital mal. And actually, there were some, several examples in which uh, he did this. So, so again, um, this is a sanction against corruption or any possible corruption. Of course, there are many, many truly. Um, uh, fine, upstanding you know Muslim leaders, and they just died penniless because they you know they weren 't in the space of just feathering their own pockets and so on and and, and, and this is what uh, we, we want to look at um, you know my fourth point there is again, you know this current world order you know we I can bring all sorts of arguments to saying why we need to have a gold and silver standard and i could and in fact, I wrote a paper with with some friends few years ago about 10 of the reasons why uh you know people put forward 10 reasons 10 key reasons why gold and silver won't work so we we went and refuted those arguments and said you know but it's not going to get any traction um you know in the universities and in in the, the corridors of power because the politicians like the fact that they can have deficits they like the fact that they can overspend they like the fact that they can promise the earth moon sun and stars to the electorate and then of course just go out there and borrow more because repayment of those loans is going to be on somebody else's watch um so so they they don't like gold and silver as money they hate it in fact and of course they will never end usury because this is you know a large part of the institutions and the elites and the corporates and the banks and so on uh, which are the main power brokers in this world you know this is their whole way that they work and do it but when the Islamic Khilafah system is returning and we have gold and silver as money and we have no usury, we have no interest, you know, the public will say, you know, how on earth could we have tolerated such a system in which, you know, we had paper money and we had interest and everyone was, you know, basically working for a bank, you know, uh, one way or another. You know, and, 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 and the, the public will say, gee, we've been had, we've, we've been conned and we've been conned for decades and decades. Now, the point I, I really wanted to make in this short presentation, you know, was number five here, which is, you know, the key to a vibrant economy, i.e. widespread, is, is widespread circulation of wealth. You know, Islam doesn't say, oh, no, you can't be, you know, wealthy. You know, it's not some aestheticism, you know, you, you have to be in poverty all the time. And, you know, a good person is a poor person. No, Islam doesn't say that. In fact, some of the Sahaba were, were very wealthy. But they paid their zakat and they gave gifts and they gave sadaqah and they were in the first in line, you know, in terms of, you know, to, to fund campaigns of jihad and so on and so forth. So Islam doesn't deride them, but it provides this natural mechanism for investment and, and wealth oriented tax, you know, whether that's zakat or emergency type taxes, you know, to ensure that people are spending and, and giving in charity and investing uh, in, in, in the best way. So this provides the circulation which the world needs. You know, we, we go into recessions uh, periodically in this in this uh, uh, capitalism, and and those recessions are really you know nightmares because you know there's there's a massive withdrawal of money from circulation, and those with money just take it out of circulation and sit on their hands and do nothing until they see a circumstance where they can start investing again. No, that would not happen and doesn't happen in the Islamic uh, economy. Um, and then again, my last point, um, you know, our real responsibility is, is to take back the authority from these, you know, tyrannical regimes, you know, which are, are actually holding us from Islam, are actually the barrier to the implementation of Islam. You know, my very first slide, I talked about the Islamic thoughts. You know, we, we have an incredible way of life. We have an incredible text. In the Quran and Sunnah, we have the great details of how this was applied in the time of the Prophet ﷺ and and the the Khalifa Rashida and and many uh, periods after that, Uh, and the details are all available and they've all been well documented and and we present them. So so really it's on on our responsibility that we must carry them uh, and we should be challenging the status quo and and, and it's really for us to be implementing uh, these ideas and systems and laws and rules and so on and so forth. And and it, it will indeed uh,
0: come again in, in the Muslim world. <clears throat> yeah. Well, um, thank you very much uh, indeed, um, Jamal, for that fascinating uh, presentation. Very comprehensive, actually, and um, I understood a lot more of what you said than I thought I would actually. <laughs> um, that that was a uh, uh, very enlightening. Um, and I mentioned bef- just when we started um, that you blog regularly at uh, Economy Dissected on Facebook, and I'll i uh, link to it in the description so you can continue to uh, read up on this. And I'll certainly be giving it a look, I, I think. Um, now you stimulate stimulated my interest. Um, so um, thank you very much indeed, Jamal, for your time, your contribution. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome, Paul. And uh, I appreciate um, <clears throat> blogging
1: theology. You know, you, you do cover a fascinating range of subjects and some very interesting speakers. And, and I think it's a very unique um, space and, and uh, you know, may Allah give you strength and continue in your efforts and
0: uh, inshallah um, you know, have great success in this endeavor inshallah, inshallah, well thank you very much thank you very much and until next time take care thank you for listening to this podcast